Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the Acquirers Multiple in a highly liquid, tax-efficient and capital-efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. When you're ready, sir. Let's go. Go! Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Lawrence Hamtill of Fortune Financial. We're going to talk about SIN stocks. We're going to talk about sectors and how that impacts value and growth, international and domestic, and lots of other interesting stuff. We'll be talking to Lawrence right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Lawrence. How are you? I'm doing well, Toby. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Let's dive into it. You're, uh, I've been following you for a while on Twitter and um, the, the thing that you speak about most is the impact of sector weightings on various different uh, analyses of the market and how uh, some of the things that we, we think about value versus growth, we think about large versus small or US versus international. You say that there's this um, undiscovered or undiagnosed sector bet that's driving a lot of those returns. So let's talk about that in the value versus growth context first. Sure. Um, you say that there's, so there's no value premium in large cap. There's a value premium in small and mid. Um, but you say that a lot of the returns over the, the last few decades have been driven by sectors more than by value or growth. Can you explain w- what that means? Yeah, well, I think it's first off uh, when I talk about the lack of a value premium and large caps, it's classically uh, defined as price to book. I think other metrics might show some better results. But if you look at the sort of the past 20 to 30 years of, uh, let's say, the Russell 1000 growth versus value indices, you, you typically have in the growth portfolio a lot of technology and healthcare and the value uh, portfolio, a lot of banks and energy. And um, there have been a couple of different cycles, the the late 90s, where healthcare and tech did really well, banks and energy didn't do so well. And so it kind of gave this uh, image that growth was killing value. And then that reversed in the 2000s when oil prices took off and there was kind of a global financial bubble, so to speak, and conversely, tech stocks cratered after the the tech bust, and so value kind of reclaimed the lead. And then, of course, we had the financial crisis, and energy prices have plummeted, and and now growth has kind of retaken the lead. And and so there's this cyclical nature to this, but in my mind, it's not so much growth versus value. It's these these huge weightings of, of certain sectors in one index and underweightings in the other. And uh, some different analyses I, I've looked at, for example, and um, technology, where uh, so-called value technology stocks have actually outperformed the overall growth index. So it seems to me the conclusion should be that uh, technology, no matter how it's defined, has done really well. And energy and banks, no matter how they're classified as growth or value, haven't done as well. So that's kind of how I understand these things and how I've come to look at it. And I, I think it's helpful to unwrap these uh, these indices sometimes and kind of look under the, the hood and, and see what's really driving uh, one thing or another. Is it is it the uh, valuation or is it the, the sector weightings that are, of course, affected by what's going on in the global economy and so forth? Is it a definitional problem of value? Is it using price to book to classify these things? Do you do you improve your results by using the flow measures like cash flow or earnings? I think uh, looking at um, a lot of different metrics, a lot of research 
has shown that that having a, a kind of a combination of things does improve your results. And the the other thing that, that allows you to do is it allows you to stay away from absolutes. So if you have um, a lot of different metrics, you can kind of create a more sectoral sector neutral approach. So you're not making implicit sector bets, and I think that overall reduces the the tracking error. Of course, certain industries like technology, they might be cheap on a PE basis, but expensive on a price to book basis. So if you just use price to book, you would not have much exposure there. But if you used a kind of multi, um, multi-tool approach, you would have uh, a lot more balance, I think. So let's let's just go back to what the one of the first things you said when when we t- when we look back over the last thirty years, for example. So that's three pretty clear cycles in my mind. There's the the nineteen nineties, which uh, ends with the 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 dot com bubble kind of bursting, but in that run up, that's uh, tech massively outperforming and healthcare massively outperforming. And those were classified by price to book as uh, as growth stocks because they were expensive through that period. Sure. And then uh, following the in the the next decade, there's a there's a tech wreck, and there's this energy and financial super cycle, and uh, price to book for whatever reason classifies energy or tends to classify energy and financials as value. And tech continues to be classified as growth, and so value gets this really nice tailwind through that period. And then in the last ten years, that's reversed again, where it's been we've had the the uh, the credit crisis, so financials have been uh, hurt really badly. Uh, the energy oil prices have dropped, so uh, so energy price so energy stocks have been hurt really badly. And we've had that second coming of the dot com and so it's looked like a growth decade again but what you're saying is that if instead you remain sector neutral through uh through that period rather than dividing those sectors on the basis of value that you could have done better and and you, and the example you give of that is that tech value names have done better than the tech index or other other tech names yeah yeah i mean to to clarify i looked at say for example uh, the Russell 1000 uh, sub-indices, and they have these sub-indexes for value and growth. And so the Russell value technology stocks outperformed the Russell 1000 growth index, I believe, over the last decade. So uh, it, it's hard for these companies, no matter how cheap they are, to overcome certain macro headwinds. And, and I'll throw another variable, which is um, inflation and, and the currency. So from 2000 to 2008 or so, the U.S. dollar lost something like 40% of its of its value versus other currencies. Well, of course, the weak dollar is good for energy prices, and so that's going to be a big tailwind for for these value portfolios, and and that has reversed since the financial crisis, with with the dollar having appreciated uh, fairly substantially, especially over the last five years. So it's these stocks, they, they might be cheap, but they're probably going to continue to stay cheap and, until some of these external factors uh, alleviate a little bit. If you, on an unconstrained basis, do you, do you think that this is a, which sectors do you think are more likely to outperform at this stage of the, of the cycle? It, it, it's hard to say. I mean, there's, there's definitely going to be uh, a little bit of mean reversion over over the long term. Personally, I, I try to stay somewhat sector neutral in the portfolios that I manage. Uh, most of my clients, they, they're not uh, really interested in having a lot of tracking error. So we, we try to stay pretty close to the overall weights in the index. But I will say that we tend to have uh, a little bit of overweights in technology uh, healthcare and consumer staples, but uh, that's also where we happen to like most of our individual names. We would be less likely to to take big concentrated bets on what we think are more cyclical sectors, uh, financials, energy, materials, even though that might be where some of the cheaper names are. So the uh, the sector analysis extends beyond just value and growth. One of the 
uh, interesting blog posts that you have on your site. You talk about, and this is this is a, a discussion that's ongoing on Twitter at the moment, that the U.S. on, say, a Cape basis seems to be extremely expensive and the rest of the world uh, seems to be cheaper. But you say that that's, that's largely, that's, that's, that's the composition of the rest of the world versus the composition of the U.S. And if you make adjustments for that sector composition, if you adjust for that sector composition, the rest of the world starts looking much more expensive and the U.S. looks a little bit cheaper. And, and that's because the U.S. has a lot of consumer staples uh, that the rest of the world just doesn't have and the rest of the world tends to be more financials and materials. Right. Now, I think that that's, that's fair. And, and I think if you look at, for example, Europe, um, it's been pretty much uh, kind of a quote-unquote lost decade for European stocks. If you look at the, the uh, let's say, MSCI Europe, but if you look at some of the European sectors uh, individually, healthcare and staples have done reasonably well. They just happen to be relatively small weights in the index. Um, but that also sort of uh, obscures what you're talking about with the with the overall valuation. And, and so in a globalized marketplace, uh, for example, let's look at a company in the Europe uh, market, Nestle. It's a global um, multinational. Their Switzerland alone doesn't have enough people to support uh, you know the products that Nestle wants to sell. So, they have to go abroad to, to sell their products. Well, of course, um, in this atmosphere of, of multinationals and, and globalization, uh, a lot of these similar companies are going to be priced uh, fairly similarly. And that's true when you look at, let's say, European consumer staples versus U.S. consumer staples and so forth, where you tend to get the bigger divergences in valuation or in what you might call the static industries like utilities and financials. Um, but again, they're fairly cheap for a reason. They tend to have a revenue base that's purely domestic. They might be more highly regulated. So uh, you kind of have to do a little bit more um, digging to see what the truth is there. What are you really buying if you're buying these these uh, these cheap foreign markets? And to your point, they they simply aren't as diverse as the U.S. market. There's I think some cultural aspect to this as well in the Anglo-Saxon countries, uh, you know, you're familiar with Australia, the U.S. certainly, Canada, uh, there's a lot more um, equity reliance and, and some of the European markets, Germany, France, and so forth, they might be more reliant on the banking system for financing. So the equity universe is relatively limited. And I think that that's a, a under-discussed factor um, in this uh, in this conversation as well, so that's that's not something that I've encountered before. So, are you saying that this is in a in a startup type context that uh, the Europeans tend to rely on debt rather than equity? Uh, I think that that's that's true. There have been uh, some studies um, that uh, I've read in the past where uh, a lot of, for example, in Germany, a country I'm somewhat familiar with. Uh, a lot of the businesses tend to be family-owned uh, and somewhat closely held. And, and so in the, the bigger uh, stock market in Germany, you tend to have a lot of big blue-chip companies that are pretty much the same as they've been for decades, Siemens, BASF, Deutsche Bank, BMW, and so forth. Um, they don't have the kind of creative destruction uh, that you might see in the U.S., where every five or ten years— uh, the major leaders are changing. So uh, it's a little bit different when you're looking at historical valuations and, and so forth. You In Europe, you tend to be betting on the same horses year after year. In the U.S., there's a lot more, not necessarily turnover, but but there's a changing of the guard, so to speak. Uh, being Australian, I'm, I'm very familiar with the Australian index. And so I in trying to construct a sector neutral or try to construct a more balanced portfolio, in Australia with retirement money. That was one of the issues that I encountered that the Australian index for, is a lot like the Canadian index. And for folks who don't know, it means it's about half financials, which is a huge bet, which is un, uh, sounds unusual. And then I think it's about a third 
um, basic materials, which is might, might be what you what what you'd expect, which is mining and so forth. But then, if you try to find, like, if you use a research affiliates fundamental index, um, which which tries to get to the underlying uh, revenues and profitability and so forth, rather than just market capitalization, where it doesn't actually help much at all, because that's just the size of those industries in, sure. in the countries, and that, that's one of the the great things about the states that does have a very very substantial technology sector, very substantial consumer staples and so on that do seem to be uh, pretty good industries for the most part. And I think I think I saw something that the fang stocks or or, or the technology stocks at least are the reason why the U.S. has outperformed over the last decade, whereas the rest of the world has basically stagnated. Yeah, I I, I think that that's probably true. And you, for whatever reason, um, if you you look at it from a even an immigration standpoint, uh, I don't I don't know the exact numbers, but a lot of companies here in the U.S. are founded by immigrants, and people tend to come here and and uh, you know look at Google for example, uh, they immigrate to the U.S. and they start these huge companies that are successful, and and that just doesn't seem to be the case. In a lot of foreign markets, whether it's regulatory, cultural, I don't know, but but the phenomenon is there, and um, it it does make I, I've made the comment before when you talk about home bias that uh, we're often told as American investors to diversify abroad, but the reality seems to be that the U.S. market diversifies the rest of the world for foreigners just because it's so deep and there's a a, a lot of um, very diverse industries from which to choose. Uh, it would be very difficult to to build a, a very diversified domestic-only portfolio in most other countries, except maybe Japan. And one of the things that you've suggested to correct for that, as a U.S. investor looking to go abroad, is to look in each sector and just find the the better companies in each sector, and then buy them regardless of where they are. So that'll still mean that you have a very large U.S. weighting, but you may end up with some more international exposure. Yeah, I, I think that that's true. If you if you look at the global equity portfolio, it's something like 55% U.S., 45% rest of the world. But if if you look at it from a sector standpoint, uh, which I believe has has kind of started to dominate the discussion versus regional or, or country factors, you probably will end up with a, with a lot more U.S. companies. And uh, I'm just guessing here, but it might be something like 80% U.S., 20% foreign. Um, but that's, that's not just looking back over the past decade of, of U.S. dominance. It's just looking where the opportunities are, where the, where the best um, – best-run companies are, how they treat their shareholders, returning cash, etc. Um, that just happened to be what I think is fundamentally true, uh, regardless of relative valuations and so forth. Uh, one of the interesting things that you, I saw in that, in that uh, U.S. versus international blog post is when you talk, about, you talk about materials as a sector, and then you break down the, the materials sector even further to illustrate something interesting about uh, the U.S. versus the rest of the world. So materials in the U.S. tends to be dominated by uh, uh, industrial chemicals, um, which you say is a much better business than um, than materials in the rest of the world, which tends to be metals and mining. Yeah, I think I think if you um, if you look at it, mining is kind of a tough industry, right? It's very capital intensive. The end product is basically fungible, whether it's mined in Arizona or Indonesia. Um, there's not much of a competitive advantage except for maybe the assets that you own and, and your cost of extraction and so forth. But it's not like, for example, uh, Apple competing with Samsung, an iPhone being different from, a, from an Android phone. I mean, copper and gold are pretty much the same no matter where they're extracted from the earth. And, of course, it's very cyclical. So that industry is tough, and it probably deserves to be trading at a lower multiple than, say, industrial chemicals, which uh, are also cyclical, but slightly less so. And, of course, you have the uh, ability to differentiate your products and so forth. So when we look at these relative valuations by sector, that's very helpful 
but you also have to go through and look at the sub industries too and and really kind of take a scalpel to these indices to see exactly what you're what you're buying because you are making a bet on those underlying industries so i think uh, that's what and it, it makes sense too uh that these foreign uh material sectors would be dominated by mining because uh, kind of like utilities and banks you can't move the mine to another location that's that's static right so it, it's going to be um, purely domestic or wherever those assets are owned chemicals you can kind of make those just about anywhere as long as the facilities are in place so it's a lot of variables going on there for sure and one of the uh the just to, to illustrate the point that you make in the blog post you say uh telling people to lighten up on their U.S. exposure is something like telling them to lighten up on Apple to increase their exposure to BHB Billiton and HSBC. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's basically, if you, it's a little bit of a, of a bitter pill to swallow, so to speak. If, well, let me reverse what I said and say it's an easier sales pitch to your client to say the U.S. is expensive, the rest of the world is cheaper, I don't know that many clients would respond if you actually said, we're going to sell your Apple and buy a bunch of mining stocks. They might think, okay, hold on a second. That doesn't sound so appealing, right? So, uh, but that's basically what you're doing by making that trade. And I think uh, we haven't even discussed the currency impact, which I believe is kind of the main driver of excess returns one way or another, uh, the U.S. versus the rest of the world. Well, let's talk so, about the currency. Sure. Well, I I just posted uh, to Twitter a couple of graphs just looking at, at the impact of, say, Switzerland, which is a company, or sorry, a country that has a history of a strong currency. And, uh, and I think it's appreciated something like 1% per annum versus the U.S. dollar over the last century, something like that. So it's not, you know, a, a country with a history of high inflation where currency is going to be a, a real big issue. But looking at relative valuations, there doesn't seem to be much of a pattern over the past 40 or so years where uh, Swiss stocks were cheaper and so they did better than the U.S. over the subsequent decade. It really has more to do with, with the uh, U.S. dollar being weak or strong. And so most of my work has shown that Anytime the U.S. underperforms, it's usually because the dollar's been weak, and and when the rest of the world outperforms, or sorry, underperforms, it's because the dollar's been strong. So it it's it's a hell of a headwind to have to overcome uh, the currency translation, and I think that that's that's something that a lot of people don't take into account. Now, personally, I think when you own foreign stocks, the main benefit is for a currency. Diversification. I mean, the dollar is not going to be strong forever. We just talked about the period from 2000, 2008, when the dollar declined substantially. Uh, so you, you, what I'm, I don't want to be perceived as saying don't own any foreign. I just want to understand that it's, it plays a certain role in your portfolio. And I think the, the currency aspect is, is the bigger aspect versus just trying to outperform uh, on a valuation basis or something like that. That's interesting. And so. The one of the other places where you say that uh, sector has a great deal more influence than the traditional classification is large cap versus small cap, and you say that um, it's it's defensive sectors that tend to be defensive tends to turn up more in large cap, and there are more cyclicals in the small cap. Is that am I am I am I mangling what you're saying there? Well, I, I think uh, to to some extent it's 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 true, but the the uh, for example, um, and small value tends to have a lot of regional banks. Um, they're the the large cap pool, of course, is going to be dominated by big multinationals that derive something like thirty to forty percent of the revenues from overseas. Uh, small caps are probably going to be more domestically oriented, so I think they're probably more tied into the cyclical nature of the U.S. economy alone. Uh, but, but broadly speaking, I think um, looking at the numbers, uh, a lot of the, depending on on how you're defining it, and looking at each sector, 
consumer staples, for example, tend to exhibit the same characteristics, whether they're large, medium, or small cap companies. Obviously, energy companies, small, medium, or large, are, are to a great extent going to be subject to whatever happens in the uh, uh, energy markets and the price of oil, for example. So when we, we look at a small cap premium, uh, I think it's it's very, well, in a few sectors, maybe that, that small caps have actually delivered a higher risk-adjusted return than, than large caps. But, but broadly speaking, just as we talked about with the foreign versus U.S., large versus small, these companies aren't operating in a vacuum. And uh, they're going to be subject to the same macro factors. And uh, they all tend to exhibit the same um, characteristics in an upturn or downturn, uh, whether despite what size they are. Of course, small caps are probably going to be more volatile as a class just because they're less diversified, um, maybe have uh, lower credit ratings and so forth. But yeah, broadly speaking, I, I think the sector and industry factors dominate this discussion. One of the analyses that you do in this blog post is you talk about uh, sectors like consumer staples, utilities, and healthcare, which are more traditionally defensive sectors, and then you you do several different analyses of them. You say they have better they have better uh, return relative to the risk where we're defining risk as volatility here. They tend to have uh, shallower and shorter drawdowns. And on a rolling 60-month basis, which is a rolling five-year basis, they tend to have better uh, maximum drawdown. So the maximum, the, 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 the worst performance is better over those periods of time. Yeah, and I think that that's just more evidence to show that utilities are utilities, whether they're large, medium, or, or small. Um, they have relatively uh, stable cash flows. Uh, they're not cyclical. Even in a downturn, people have to pay their electric bill and so forth. Uh, consumer staples, you know, you look at the S&P 600, and those are uh, the small cap consumer staples sector. It's going to be companies like WD-40, CalMain Foods. I mean, these are basic things that people have in their house all the time, pretty much regardless. It's not to say that they're... Um, you know, great in investments all the time, but but they they just tend to have more predictable cash flows. Healthcare is a little different. Uh, small cap healthcare tends to be a lot of biotech and things like that, which are um, not exactly uh, known for their uh, stability and share price uh, returns. But um, yeah, it, it's I think if you look at it from from those different risk uh, metrics, whether it's drawdowns or um, you know, worst uh, returns over any five-year period, uh, they're all going to be fairly similar um, because they're all interacting with, like I said, those same macro factors. Um, I, I think one analysis I did was showing the relative performance of consumer discretionary versus consumer staple stocks uh, relative to the change in jobless claims. And uh, I think it was something like a maybe a third or so of the relative returns of consumer staples versus discretionary could be uh, explained by the uh, jump in, in jobless claims, of course, uh, during recessionary periods. And that was true for the small cap uh, sectors as well as large cap, which kind of gives a little bit more evidence that uh, these things are not acting in a vacuum, as I've, as I've said. One of the interesting things for me that came out of that uh post of yours, and this is something that an earlier guest, Ben Clamon, a point that he made too, he said that mid-cap has tended to be the the better, uh, sec, uh, the, the better uh, market capitalization region to be in, and it's delivered returns that are something like the returns to small cap, which have tended to be a little bit better, but it's done that on a risk basis that looks more like large cap, so you get a little bit of the best of both worlds. Yes, and I, that's... Uh... I think that that's something that I've looked at as as well, and and uh, my theory behind that is that the mid cap companies tend to be better, uh, more higher quality, shall we say, than small cap companies, but they tend to be less picked over than the large cap. I think that they probably have as a whole fewer analysts uh, digesting their performance all the time, and and so they have this perhaps. Uh, kind of an ability to be under the radar and, and still 
still be worthwhile uh, investments that you know not everybody is is looking at the so-called celebrity stocks in the large cap sphere. So yeah, I, I think whether you look at it from a risk-adjusted standpoint or or even just an absolute return standpoint, they have been. Uh, better performers. And, and uh, when I do this kind of a analysis, I always try to look at duration, not a uh, duration of drawdowns and, and, and the depth of it. And, and uh, over the past uh, several decades, mid caps have tended not just to be the best performers, but also they've rebounded more quickly on uh, in general than uh, other sectors of the market. And they've tend to had a little bit shallower drawdown certainly than small caps so I, I think that's kind of the sweet spot if you will of the market it has been historically anyway whether or not that continues is of course anybody's guess but history would say that that that's um, where you would probably want to be yeah I tend to agree with you I I, th I think that it's uh, there there are a few factors at play one of them is that by the time they get to that size they tend to have professional management and they're sufficiently well capitalized that they can survive uh, some of the little bumps in the in the business cycle and then uh, in addition to that there's a there's an enormous amount of private uh, you know professional private equity and professional activism that uh, hunts in that region from sort of 1 billion to 10 billion or 2 billion to 10 billion dollars so if they get out of line a little bit there are there are professional uh, right. investors in there who are trying to push them back and then, and then the other reasons you've identified too—they're just not as picked over, so they tend to be—they tend to be a little bit cheaper. I don't know if that's always the case. It might not, might not be the case at the moment, but they have tended to be a little bit cheaper. So it's my favorite. It's mid-cap is my favorite area. Yeah, and I, I think those are all very good points. I haven't done this analysis, but I suspect it's it's true um, in many foreign markets as well. Uh, just speaking from some uh, rough analysis I did a while ago, I know and. In Germany, too, for example, that's that tends to be where the real dynamism is, and, and their economy is in the the middle middle sized companies. Um, I don't know how diverse it is on a public market basis, but uh, I think that there's a little bit of a under discussed aspect of dynamism here, like what you're saying that if they get out of line, maybe. Uh, outside investors will will pressure them to to do make changes something like that um, it might be a little bit easier to accomplish that in a smaller company than a, a larger one i'm not sure uh the, the ideas that you're proposing are radical is probably the wrong word but they are quite different to uh the way that we traditionally think about asset allocation so you're saying that that it's not a it's not a value versus growth it's not U.S. versus international. It's not small cap versus large cap. It's getting exposure to the right sectors. So how do you implement that for clients? What does your portfolio or your model portfolio, how does that, how does that end up being constructed? What I, what I try to do, and of course it varies from client to client, but we, we look at, first of all, the, the global equity portfolio, uh, which includes uh, emerging market countries. And uh, we we want to say, okay, well, what type of exposures do we want for each client? Uh, some investors might be on the more conservative, lower risk side of the spectrum, and so they'll probably have a little bit more exposure than than others to uh, classically uh, defined low volatility sectors, whether it's staples and healthcare. Not as many utilities, uh, to be honest, especially where they are in this cycle. They tend to be um, a little bit uh, driven by interest rates more so than, than other factors. So I, I'm not as uh, well-versed in that part of the market. But broadly speaking, looking at the average client, the, the sector exposures are benchmarked to the S&P 500. And we look at those, those weights and we try to be not necessarily too uh, different from that benchmark, but it's going to stray, you know, a couple percentage points here and there. And uh, of course, the way I define things might be a little different uh, from how the index providers define it. So for example, in, in financials, uh, I don't have a lot of bank exposure, 
but I think of my financial exposure as maybe service companies like a Visa or MasterCard, which I'm not mistaken, might be classified as technology. I'm not 100% sure. So, so the way I approach it is, is slightly different where the sectors overall, in my mind, are, are not too different, but the sub-industries might be, might be a little different from the, from the benchmark. So again, kind of to sum that up, we try to be sector neutral, but with a, a, an element of customization. Uh, and that's not just on the uh, US versus rest of the world allocation, it's also with the, the industries within each sector. And uh, one of the things that I've seen you speak about or, or, or tweet about is uh, some of the tobacco stocks. You like tobacco as, uh, as an industry? I do. Um, personally, it's one of my largest holdings uh, as, as far as an industry goes. Um, I think you have a lot of positive things going for it, which is you have a huge barrier to entry. Uh, because of the regulations, um, the la the kind of the the ban on advertising uh, makes it difficult for uh, new players to compete. It also allows the companies to return a lot of cash to shareholders. Um, I think uh, if you look at the the products, even though um, the absolute or the percentage of people smoking in the U.S. has been declining steadily. The absolute number has more or less uh, stayed the same. Uh, of course, the population has grown, changing the percentage. But what you see there is the ability of these companies to raise prices uh, again and again. And so their profit margins have been high and, and they've continued to make money even as their um, product sales have declined on a somewhat continuous basis. Globally speaking, out of 7 billion people, I think the number is a billion who still smoke and so there's there's still a demand for these things for better or worse. And I, I think in, a, in an industry that is dominated by uh, a few companies uh, around the world um, that are relatively insulated against competition, um, you know, there's a lot to be said for it. Uh, of course, you can look back historically and and, and see that there's a, a lot of potential there. Uh, currently, the industry is out of favor, but there's an element of cyclicality to it. Uh, people tend to not want to own these companies because their, uh, their products are harmful to people, and, and that tends to push the valuations lower, but that also tends to be um, uh, a boon for the people who are willing to own them because uh, as you know lower valuations tend to work out work themselves out to higher forward returns that's the so-called sin premium if you will so yeah it's i think that there's a lot to be said for it uh, past results of course don't don't uh, indicate anything as far as what the future may hold but i do think the fundamentals of the industry are are still relatively strong especially on a global basis and uh, for people who are interested in owning the shares, I think personally, like myself, you just have to understand that there are going to be periods when regulation and so forth are unfavorable. Investors are going to shy away from the stocks. Multiples will compress. And, and um, you know, it's not, not necessarily always going to be a smooth ride. And, of course, there's, I think one thing that attracts me to consumer staples in general is there tends to be uh, a little bit of a lack of outside uh, disruption. If you look at the best performing industries over time, tobacco, alcohol, and so forth, they're asset-like companies, um, relatively stable cash flows in terms of the economic cycle, and they're not necessarily going to be disrupted. If you look at Apple, for example, before the iPhone, Nokia was the major cell phone maker in the world. And of course, Apple came along and upset that. And it seems to me with technology and so forth, there's always something new and better that's coming along. Um, and the staple sector as a whole, um, that, that seems to be less the case uh, because those products are going to be in demand, generally speaking, um, you know, without much interruption. So I, I, I think I've, I've written a lot about that sector. I, I tend to favor boring industries and companies myself. 
Uh, I'm a suffering tobacco investor at the moment, but I'm still uh, I'm not giving up on it. Sounding a little bit like another reasonably well-known Midwestern investor, uh, I, I, <laughs> Buffett, of course. Uh, when I wish uh, I had his success. <laughs> it's, it's early days. When uh, when when you see that valuation compression in tobacco, is it because of something like vaping? Are you concerned that that, uh, that that potentially steals some of the returns to tobacco, or do you think that that is something that just helps the industry? Well, it's an interesting question, and I'm not sure that I, I have all the data yet to answer it, and I'm not sure anybody else does either. But some analysis that I've seen um, has indicated maybe it's a little too hopeful. I don't know. But uh, the vaping is not necessarily just a cannibalization of, of current smokers, but might also be attracting people who never consume nicotine in the first place. So you go maybe from a sort of or so-called melting ice cube to something that sort of expands the potential profit pool. And, and I think that there is that uh, potential it remains to be seen. It's 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 early on, but then when you look at the global marketplace for tobacco, uh, each country I think is is going to have different results. Uh, so it, it's looking at the U.S. and extrapolating to the rest of the world might be misguided. Uh, but I think in one way or another, uh, combustibles are going to be a a big part of the global. A tobacco uh, portfolio for a time to come, and and vaping will probably take some share away from that. But I'm not convinced that it will be a kind of a, a cannibalization, if you will. I I think that there's some upside potential there as well, but it it's still early on. It, there there needs to be a little bit more, um, uh, you know, results to be studied to see exactly what effect it will have. Do you like uh, the vice or sin uh, industries as a whole? Are you? I mean, we we've talked about alcohol. I think aerospace and defense falls into into vice or sin, and maybe marijuana stocks are, are are kind of in that category now as well. I don't know what what else you'd expand it to include, but it's traditionally also included casinos and gambling. Yeah, I, I think um, you know historically these these industries and the so-called vice portfolio have outperformed and and uh pim van fleet who is a, a friend of mine he's kind of the expert on low volatility stocks and and he and his colleagues at uh, rubico rebecca if i pronounced that correctly wrote a paper about the so-called sin anomaly and and they basically broke it down into uh, i think value low volatility and and quality and uh, I wrote a blog post about casino stocks, which, which, for whatever reason, have tended not to follow the path as the other so-called sin industries. She mentioned uh, alcohol, tobacco, aerospace, and defense. All of those have done very well, but they also screen pretty well as far as the factors of quality, low volatility, and value. Casinos do not or have not. And I think that's, that's for example, one reason why I say um, – not all sin stocks are created equal. You have to be aware too that that there might be uh, a high degree of leverage or cyclical uh, earnings, whatever the case might be, that that makes those uh, industries a little bit subpar compared to their peers in the uh, so-called uh, vice portfolio. It's it's one it's it's something that I find interesting, and it's not something I fully understand. But I don't know why. Uh, Casino stocks tend to be so bad, but they seem to be very boom bust. Their 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 busts are terrible. I don't know if it's because they've got because it is all of that leverage that they tend to have to to build the casino. And I guess the the revenue side it, that must be cyclical. Is that when when times are tough, people don't go to Vegas? <laughs> I'm sure that has something to do with it too. And and uh, I think one. And I'm no expert by any means, but I think one other element that the uh, the other sin industries have is what we call wide moats or high barriers to entry. It's it's difficult, for example, as we discussed in the tobacco industry, for new players to come in. In the aerospace and defense industry, 
Uh, it's a difficult marketplace to uh, disrupt incumbents and so forth. Casinos don't seem to have that added element of of uh, insulation against uh, um, you know other competitors. So you know, for example, you can go to Vegas or you can go somewhere else around the world to gamble. I, I don't know if that has any impact whatsoever. That just seems like the fundamentals of that industry are um, worse compared to the others in that category. But you're right. I mean, the booms and busts are pretty epic in the uh, casino industry. It's not for the faint of heart to hold those shares. You only got you only you only hunting them when they're in a bust. <laughs> and when, when you see the boom coming, you you sell them. That seems like a fair assessment, but uh, it would require a braver person than I am. <laughs> I you 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 raised it as, and it's a, one of the another one of the topics that I uh, associate with you is the low volatility anomaly. Can you describe what that is and uh, tell us how we can take advantage of it? Well, I, I think that it uh, there are a few different variations of it, but I guess simply put, uh, over time, stocks with uh, lower degree of volatility than others. Has, this is price tended, volatility? Uh, yes. Yeah, have tended to do better than than others. Um, that could be due to different reasons. It could be, uh, for example, in, in the S&P 500 low volatility index, which is widely quoted, that tends to be a lot of, which I don't believe is sector neutral. So you have these kind of big sector overweights, usually real estate, um, utilities, and consumer staples. Well, we know why those are low volatility. It's because they're classically defensive sectors. Um, if you look at uh, a minimum volatility portfolio, which is another variation, it's really kind of a minimum variant. So it's more sector neutral, but you're you're looking at it from a slightly different angle. But broadly speaking, the the effect is is very similar. Uh, but in my mind, the way I understand it is these these stocks tend to do better because. Uh, as we said, there's there's less volatility, which means there's less severe drawdowns. And I think of it in a baseball analogy. It's kind of like doubles and singles add up over time to much more than home runs and strikeouts. And, and so, uh, Pim Van Fleet again, he talks about the so the associated pain with low volatility investing is that it's um, almost sometimes unbearably boring. Uh, because people look at their contemporaries with these high beta stocks and they have big swings on the upside and, and, and big downdrafts on the downside while you're there, they're kind of being the tortoise versus the hare. And uh, I think that in the long run, all of that takes effect and, and it compounds itself to a better overall return. Uh, but there are a lot of different ways to take advantage of it. There's certainly a lot of ETFs and mutual funds uh, that are low cost and effective for what you want to what you want to accomplish. Um, currently, there's a lot of uh, discussion because these stocks have done so well relative to the market over the past 12 months that a lot of them are expensive. So investors should be aware of that. But I would point out that there is a high degree of of turnover in these indices, um, you're not necessarily going to be betting on the the same uh, stocks that are currently in it because of the periodic rebalancing. And the other thing is, unlike other factors such as value, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that that valuation has a big impact on subsequent a low or minimum volatility return. So, of course look into that and, and see if it's appropriate for you. But it's certainly something that's gaining a lot more exposure in the press because of the recent success. So I, I like, I, I think one of the things you said in there is that there are the the sectors that tend to be low volatility are, are sectors that, that you like. Is that the sectors that tend to be low volatility? I, I like the way that you can, every everything is a sector bit. Well, I, I to be honest with you, I I guess I not coming from a real great academic background. I uh, sort of stumbled upon this uh, in my earlier days when I was uh, kind of more like a stockbroker and looking at companies from a more of a fundamental standpoint. And, and I tended to overweight a lot of consumer staples. And then when I started to explore the phenomenon a little bit more, I realized it was actually a 
fairly well documented factor that that companies with less degree of variability and so forth tended to do better whether or not that's a uh, you know some people disagree and think that low volatility is a function of value and quality and so forth i don't know that's for other people who are smarter than i am to decide but uh, i think broadly speaking it's 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 true that that companies that um, you know are, are less uh, you know have, that exhibit less dramatic swings are, are going to do better in the long run and that's I think been proven true not just in the U.S. but in, in most markets around the world. So it's it's not it's sort of a misunderstood phenomenon. I think a lot of people are finding it difficult to um, kind of admit that everything they've been told about more risk equaling more reward is probably not true. Uh, so that's sort of a better pill to swallow for a lot of people who are, you know, trained in that idea. It does seem to break EMH. It, it seems to be the exact opposite of what EMH teaches us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and I think that's a whole other interesting conversation to to have about these so-called factors. And and I discuss, or I think of momentum and low volatility as more behavioral factors. The, uh, there's the whole theory of leverage aversion. And so the idea is low volatility stocks tend to do better because investors tend to favor higher beta stocks because they give them sort of de facto exposure to leverage. Um, I, I don't know those. Or it's a lottery fine. ticket type bet. Exactly. Yeah, I find that theory compelling. Uh, personally, I, I think it makes sense. And, and I think that um, as we look forward, as these factors become more discussed, more widely documented, and, and actually uh, investable through different products, I feel like these these factors like momentum and low volatility are going to persist because they're based on human nature. At least that's my understanding. And I don't think human nature is going to change very much. So I, I feel like um, you know they're they're very uh, durable as far as their potential going forward. I think a lot of the success in any portfolio, and, and this is something that we don't talk about enough, but you have to have the right shareholder base, right? So my clients being a large pool of retirees for the most part, with a few exceptions, they're not going to tolerate a lot of differentiation. But if you're like Buffett and you can tolerate periods of uh, tracking error and so forth, you know, so it just kind of depends on on having the right partners who are in the portfolio with you, and uh, that's a critical thing, I think. And and um, you know, every industry has its day in the sun. It's it's just a question of of when, and, and uh, of course, a test of somebody's conviction to uh, to hold in the down periods, like with tobacco now, for example. I saw somebody on Twitter today had had a line like, "I'm going to buy the yacht when my particular industry gets its high beta moment." <laughs> that sounds uh, sounds like something to shoot for, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that it, it's it's. I think the the other trick in this industry is just trying to survive. And a lot of people try to focus on finding the biggest winners and so forth. But for me, just staying in the game is, is winning in itself. Have you, uh, are you, do you regard yourself as a value investor? Do you, you, you sort of, you get a lot of Buffett type lines in there. Yeah, I, I think that um, I, I agree with Howard Marks that the, the best company can be a bad investment if the price is wrong. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, looking at, uh, value and growth are not naturally are not enemies, so right. to speak. Um, there are a lot of companies that look like value that that uh, are not good investments because they're not growing their earnings, for example, and and vice versa. I I consider myself uh, a little bit of a a skeptic, and and I think that you you just sort of have to be aware that. Um, not all industries are created equal. So it, it kind of really struck me when somebody talked about the oil industry and and how you've got BP and Exxon and Chevron and their final product is not much different right. from one one from another. So what's the competitive advantage? And of course you introduced the foreign competition and so forth. And I think, okay, well, um, what what impact does that have? So then 
And when you look at individual companies, if you're going to take a bet on those, what's their what's their advantage that warrants you know taking a, a little bit more concentrated bet? And I tend not to have as the, the people that I work with, um, they tend to have a little bit more creativity in my mind. I look at, for example, uh, one of my ideas that's not quite fully developed is. Uh, industry moats. And so I look at railroads, airports, tobacco. Sometimes it matters more the field in which you play than how well run the company is or any other thing. And uh, I, I think that is something that is misunderstood too. And when people look at these uh, value versus growth, I mean, um, maybe sometimes it's it's just better to go back to basics, if you will. Right. It's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I, uh, I think you have to ask yourself, too, if, if people were having this discussion in 1979 or 1980 before a big bull market took off, how they would classify their investments. And, of course, people don't remember that technology stocks, for example, were terrible investments until just about the middle 1990s. Um, you know, energy would have been a growth play, for example. So these things aren't static. They they change a lot over time, too. Yeah, I, I just just made me think of WeWork for some reason. There, I, I look at I look at WeWork and I think there's no um, there's no reason why this is a high growth stock other than the fact that it's raised an enormous amount of money and invested an enormous amount of money. Like that's the only thing that makes it high growth. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that that, again, it kind of goes back to the behavioral aspect of uh, innovation, which is you could spend a whole another hour talking about that. And uh, while these companies and their so-called innovations benefit humanity in general, most of them turn out to be terrible investments. <laughs> and people overestimate their ability to change things and they overpay for it. And whether, I don't know, I mean, the jury still out on Uber and Lyft and all of these. Um, I don't know if we work as classified it. Were they a unicorn at some point? Well, they're, they're like a $48 billion valuation or they're talking about going public at that. So they must be a year, multiple. Unicorn. Yeah. Okay. So they are, I'm not as familiar with that, but I mean, what are you really buying other than, I don't think anybody really knows what the hell they're buying to be honest with you. So it's, it's, I'm a little bit more familiar with Uber and Lyft. Is it a service company? Is it a tech company? I don't know. So uh, those are those are they fall into my as Ben Carlson too hard, stuff, too hard pile. And yeah. I'll just I'll just stay in my lane, so to speak, and look at uh, my 19th century portfolio of <laughs> <laughs> oil, railroads, and and cigarettes. I, I like that portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling they'll be with us for a long time still. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, as we're, we're sort of coming up on time, but I think uh, I'd be remiss if I don't ask you a little bit about the squatting and the deadlifting. So what brand of tube <laughs> socks uh, do you recommend? <laughs> well, anything that protects your shins from the deadlift bar. So in my mind, I've, I've had pretty good luck with anything that gets up to my kneecap. And of course, I, I look like everybody's grandpa, grandfather at the gym, but... Um, being somebody who has always deadlifted barefoot, I've always used uh, high pull socks and the, some people like shin guards. I, I think you want to keep the bar as close to your shins as possible, so I prefer the socks, but um, that's just uh, that's just how I have coped with the, the pain associated with deadlifting with the barbell. What about with the Kircher squats? Do you are you allowed to wrap the bar in anything or you got you gotta take that raw, you gotta take that commando? Well, I, I don't know. It probably sounds a little bit masochistic, but I, I feel like the bar, it's going to kill you one way or another. So the, the least amount of friction when it kind of rolls around in the crooks of your arms, uh, for anybody unfamiliar with the Zercher squat, that's something that you pin against your, your belly with the, you know, with your, the crooks of your arms. It's uh, it's going to be painful. There's different ways, whether you you know use a thicker barbell or whatever. I tend to just have the best results when I take the pain and, and just uh, <laughs> keep it tight. And it's, I figure, 
you're you have uh, somebody said, and I don't I forget the gentleman's name, but I associate it with weightlifting and also with investing. He said you have the the only choice in life is between the pain of discipline and the pain of regret. So I figure I'll take the pain of discipline, and if that means zercher squatting with a without any supports or whatever, then that's what it has to be. And uh, if folks want to get in contact with you, uh, your Twitter handle and so on. My Twitter handle is lhamtil, L-H-A-M-T-I-L. And uh, you can find my blog posts at uh, fortunefinancialadvisors.com. And uh, I'm always uh, have my uh, email there if you need to get in contact or have any questions about anything. And I'm always happy to uh, respond to any comments and so forth. I will put those three uh, blog posts and your Twitter handle and a link to your uh, Fortune Financial in the show notes for this. And so folks will be able to get in contact with you and, and find the correct form for front squatting and, and back squatting and deadlifting. Yeah, hopefully if they end up following on Twitter, the my Twitter portfolio is basically send stock squats <laughs> and uh, home and auto repair. So that's basically my my three three basic areas I cover. That's fantastic. Lawrence Hamtel, thank you very much for giving us the time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. 